Thank you, Pastor Kurt and Miss Kim. I'm not sure how well you can see her from where you sit, but uh, she's playing beautifully to my right here. And I really wish that you would be right here. I am abundantly ready for the necessary quarantining that's happened with COVID-19 to be behind us and to be back together with friends in this church facility as one body, as one assembly, and we miss you. And so we're praying for that. We also know, as Pastor Kurt said earlier, that the Lord is still working amidst his people, even when the people are providentially hindered from gathering. And so I'd like to tell you about a few of our friends uh, in the community Their names are Nick and Jessica Mason, and they built their own house. They built their own house start to finish. If you were to go to Jessica Mason's Facebook page, you could read her narration and see what kind of looks like time-lapse photography if you smash it together, because from beginning to end, she shows pictures of them building their house. I have a few on the screen just behind me. There's four of them, and I'm just asking that we kind of roll through them quickly, but you see Nick, you see the construction, you see Jessica, You see kind of some of the work that they did from the start to the finish, and it's just a sampling of the pictures that Jessica has on her Facebook page. I was moved by it some time ago, and I was moved by this beautiful story of a family who built their own house over a long period of time through sacrifices and struggles for a glorious end. I was moved by it in part because of how it parallels with the theme of the final chapter's of the book that we turn to today, 2 Corinthians. Please turn there with me now, the book of 2 Corinthians, and we're going to be looking at chapter 12, but we have to back up to chapter 10 to catch the full meaning of the theme of our text for today. We're going to be looking at chapter 12, verses 11 through 21, but if you look back at chapter 10, verse 8, what you'll find is that Paul opens this line of thought, this third line of thought in Corinthians, he, uh, open, he, he, he leads into this theme about building up or construction in chapter 10, verse 8. And it says, For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, he means of the apostles' authority in the church, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. And so there we find this theme for the last chapters of Corinthians that the authority that the apostles have is for building up and not for destroying even if sometimes the words of the letters of the apostles is painful to hear initially. If you look from chapter 10, verse 8, all the way to chapter 13, verse 10, you see a similar theme put on display. It says, For this reason I write these things while I am away from you. And so, yes, we see that gospel ministry can be done when I'm away from you, the apostle says, or when we are providentially hindered from meeting when we're separated. One of my dear brother preachers pointed out this week that Paul writes this letter from another place. So that's proof positive that the Lord can move from a distance. And so this letter was transmitted from a distance, and they had to learn how to operate sometimes away from the people that they needed to to lead them. And so there is a parallel to draw there during this COVID-19 crisis. Listen to chapter 13, verse 10. That when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority, the authority that the Lord has given me, for building up and not for tearing down. So see, authority is for building up when used rightly, not heavy-handedly. Authority is used rightly. It is to build up, not to destroy, not to tear down. Question is, what does it mean to build up and not to tear down? And that's that's what we have to get into today. I got to tell you today, friends, that in a way that it's not necessary for me to understand your job, 
in what you do for a living. It might be nice if I did. It might be pastoral if I did. But in terms of essentially, I don't have to understand your job in construction or law enforcement or at a factory or at Sabic or in your own enterprise in business or as a teacher. You, you fill in the blank of what you do. I don't have to understand it in the same way that you have to understand what an elder in a church does. And the reason for that is because you're responsible according to the priesthood of the believer, having the scriptures in your mother tongue, you're responsible to understand what the 21 letters in the New Testament, 13 of them written by the Apostle Paul himself, what they mean pieced together for the doctrine of your church. As a congregational member, you have to understand what the project of the church is, what the construction project of the church is, what the building of the church is. You have to understand that and therefore understand what under-shepherds or elders are in the church in a way that I might not have to understand your job. You have to understand my job as an elder because part of your job is to mold and shape those that would come along to be an elder. It's to hold accountable to sound doctrine those that are elders and it's to support elders in the church as they hold high, not, not in an all-competent kind of way, I know everything kind of way, but in a humble, I know what Christ wants us to do for his church kind of way to support lifting his name high and building the edifice of Christ, this bride of Christ, the church. And so you have a responsibility to know that just as I do, and we have to work together for that knowledge, for this upbuilding. And that lands us squarely in the theme of this passage, chapter 12, verse 19, have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves? It is in the sight of the God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. So they're speaking in Christ for the upbuilding. They're speaking words against rival leaders and rival leaders are speaking words against them and they're willing to, to, to fight fire with fire. They're willing to go after this because the way God's his church to be built is so central to what we're supposed to be about that the Apostle Paul and his team of leaders could not let rival leaders in Corinth undermine the very message of the letters of Scripture. It might be helpful at this point if we simply read our focus text for the day. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 through 21. I have been a fool. You forced me to it. Or I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and send the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding. Beloved, beloved, for I fear that perhaps when I come, I may 
find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to, to mourn, mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented, have not repented of impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they practiced. God has a plan to build his church his way. And so I have four points in this message as we follow through it. True apostles wrote letters of scripture that established principles of the church that left them to be maligned by others and that left them in need of the support of the saints. So the apostles wrote letters, established principles, were maligned and in need of support. And because there's four of them, I'm going to say it one more time so that you can really track with this. The true apostles wrote letters, established principles, were maligned and needed your support. And so, and needed support, as elders need your support today. So number one, true apostles of the church established a vision for the church in their letters for the church. I said there's 21 of them. The apostle Paul writing the lion's share of them. True apostles of the church established a vision in their letters for the churches about what the church is to be. Listen to this in light of the first verses in our focus passage today. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11, 12, and 13, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, or I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, signs, wonders, mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Forgive me this wrong. He's speaking hyperbolically. He's kind of joking in a way. Forgive me for not taking money from you for my personal support. Forgive me for taking it from the Macedonians and not for you. And these rival leaders were even trying to turn that on Paul to say that he wouldn't even take money from you, trying to get one over on you. But I get ahead of myself. Look at this fool's talk. It begins in our passage, verse 11. I've been a fool. This is a common theme throughout this section here, chapters 10 through 13. Strength through weakness is the theme of the whole book of 2 Corinthians. And the structure of 2 Corinthians is as follows. Chapters 1 through 7, the gospel ministry. Chapters 8 and 9, support financially for the gospel ministry. And he specifically writes about the benevolence fund for Jerusalem, which he did allow the Corinthians to, to submit their funds to, but he wouldn't personally take their funds because he thought they weren't mature enough, I think, in order to, for him to receive funds and for them to continue to grow. They needed to grow before, they, before he was able to take support from them. He wouldn't take it from the Corinthians. He would from other churches, but not from the Corinthians. And that gets into what's said here in verse 13. They were less favored than the rest of the churches. This accusation. And so, finally, as we've already said, there is a leadership rivalry in these last chapters of this book. After the ministry's been explained, the need for the collection has been explained, now there, there is this leadership rivalry, and the new leaders on the ground in the church in Corinth, or at least the self-appointed thought leaders, these influencers are inciting opposition toward the Apostle Paul and the Apostle's teaching and their associates. And so that, if you can put yourself in that frame for this passage, you can begin, I think, to mine it for all that it's worth and make application for your own life. So remember, in this first point, we're talking about that the apostles 
wrote the letters to the churches for a vision for the churches. So these letters were written by God's servants, the apostles. And there's more to it than leadership rivalry, but there's certainly not less. The newer influencers have a rival vision for the church that the Apostle Paul's team does not have. And since Paul's an apostle, which meant that he was commissioned by the resurrected Jesus and he was also witness of the resurrected Jesus, then this rival vision is is not a small ordeal. It's a problem. In fact, this still happens today. Newer influencers and churches sometimes have a rival vision for the church that is different than that of the apostles' teaching. Instead of like Acts 2.42 says, where there's a style of leadership where church leaders devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Instead of that, with each generation, there is this subtle lure to do what we think will work better, even if it's well-intentioned by most. Underneath it is the enemy and his sinister leaders inciting influence behind a rival vision for the church, which is really no vision at all. It's a vision of destruction, not for building up. But often it is couched in the kind of language that says, we know how to build up the church. And those true apostles' teachers, those true teachers of the apostles' teaching, actually are the ones that destroy the church. It's couched in mission. The signs of the apostles were the signs that accompanied the giving of the covenant with Moses as well. It's the signs and wonders and mighty works. They're speaking holistically about supernatural miracles that comes with the giving of the scriptures by God's appointed servants. You see... The apostles and the the prophets were appointed to give scripture in a way that I am not. To, To put it in a syllogism, the apostles were elders, shepherds of the churches. But elders are not apostles. I am not an apostle. I'm an elder. I'm not an apostle. But apostles were also elders. Peter writes about that in 1 Peter chapter. So it is mine is a stewardship of the apostles' message. Mine is a study of this book. Mine is not a writing of new words for you. So you can see why the Lord would see fit to bring the supernatural around the giving of his communication. We shouldn't always beg and demand the supernatural. Matter of fact, people that did that, even in Jesus' supernatural ministry, were told, there'll be none given to you the sign of Jonah, which was repent of your sin, repent of your sin. And that's the sign that's given in our text today. Repent of your sin, repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and you'll see the mighty outstretched arm of God working in your favor. But don't hold on to your sin and demand the sin. No, no, no. In fact, these apostles wrote scripture and signs and wonders accompanied the planting of the New Testament churches. Consider that there's always been rival visions to God's building plan, God's way. Consider Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, and how God intends to build his church. It says, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are citizens with the members of the household of God. Let that sink in. The household, house, edifice, household of God, your members together, and it says here, You're built on the foundations of what? Of the apostles and the prophets. What did they give us? They gave us these letters, namely. They gave us these letters, and Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone of the whole structure. Think of the building, the imagery that we're using here today as a theme. The structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It grows into a holy temple. 
process. It's labor. It's work. It's, it's sacrifice. It's selflessness. It takes time. There's fits and starts and backs and forths, and we have to reacclimate ourselves to the vision for the church, God's plan, God's way. And it says, in him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So it's not just that the Lord is building your little house and the Spirit in here. There's a corporate building of the temple of the Lord, his people. There's a corporate building of the house, and he's wanting to do that with all of us as the church. And it's special. It's special, special. He's so desperate to get the young Corinthian believers, about five years old they are. They planted the church in AD 51, and he's likely writing back to them in AD 56, just prior to his third visit here. He's so desperate for them to catch the program of the Lord for his church building project. He's so desperate for it. It's, it, it's, it's like we're sort of, why is he so focused on this? And I think we need to reassess whether or not we aren't focused enough on the right thing, instead of questioning whether or not Paul was too focused on the wrong thing. I mean, who is it that we're supposed to be questioning here? The Apostle Paul, as he's been commissioned by the resurrected Lord Jesus to give us a vision for the church, or our understanding of whether or not he's too fanatical about what the definition of the church should be? Which one of these should weigh more heavy in our thinking about what we're supposed to be about? I would advocate and submit to you that in the Spirit we see spiritually that it's the Apostle Paul's vision that Christ gave for not persecuting his church anymore, but for building it up. And so he's willing to even sink to the level of fool's talk just to try to, to counteract the people that are trying to alter the vision for the Lord's church being built up. Think, think about it this way. Bearing a little foolishness for the good of their increased faith, chapter 11, verse 1 says. He goes on foolishly boasting, chapter 11, verse 16 says. He gives his own biography, autobiography, and then praises God's work from him, through him, not in some heavenly way and some ecstatic experience, but through his own weakness as he describes his own thorn in his flesh that kept him from becoming conceited, kept him from giving into the list of vices that's listed in our passage today. Paul wouldn't become conceited because he had a thorn in his flesh. God's children all experience weakness eventually. He breaks down your pride in order to build up your faith. Paul talks foolishly to reveal that the real fools are his rivals. Paul has to lower his discourse to what the situation calls for, for the church. And these rival leaders are boasting of their fleshly, of their worldly accomplishments and their wisdom apart from the gospel message. But this is like Plato without Paul. It's like classic without Christian. It's a form of godliness, but it has no power inside. These rival leaders are making slaves of the members, taking advantage of them and seeking to devour them, chapter 11, verse 20 says. And Paul sees the enemy behind the veil. He sees the enemy behind this rival vision. And they proclaim a different Jesus, a different gospel. And these young in the faith members put up with it readily enough, chapter 11, verse 20 says. They put up with it. These men with rival visions of the apostles as church building, God's plan, God's way, are false, deceitful, disguised as servants of the light, but they aren't actually servants of the light at all. They won't stand in the end, but they sure do a lot of damage in the here and now. If you put up with the rival vision, They'll do damage in your church. The wasted opportunity, the confusion and the pain, the broken communities due to rival visions for the Lord's church building. We need to see, seek to do God's work in God's way, not to seek to do God's work in our way. The rival visions will look good in a soundbite. Satan doesn't come with a pitchfork, but he comes looking like a member of the body, not just in the dark, but posing as the light, as right. That is the message of chapters 11 and 12 in 2 Corinthians. But the apostles have the truth of Christ on their side, and you do too. 
you can't be silenced in the regions that you're called to minister in. In this case, Paul was called to minister in the region of Achaia, in Corinth, the city itself, to speak, to undermine their claims, not in self-defense, but in spirit offense, because the gates of hell will not prevail against us as we commit offense, as we commit offensive plays against the enemy. It's for your faith's increase for the gospel, for this construction and building up that the apostles' teaching must go forth. Note the inferiority of the super apostles to Paul in this text. Paul says, I'm not at all inferior to these super apostles. He's nothing, and at the same time, he's something more than them because these influencers in the church, they're, they're not apostles at all. They have not the apostle stamp from Jesus. We need to trust the writings of the apostles, such as Peter, Paul, John. We don't need to trust the statements of newfangled leaders in the church unless those statements are clearly in line with the stewardship of the gospel that comes from the apostles and prophets. Number two, the true leaders of the apostles' vision for building up the church will operate with principles like what's listed in verses 14 through 18. I'm going to share those principles with you now because these are timeless principles for all elders everywhere. And they're timeless principles for members because the elders, after all, are only supposed to demonstrate and be the example to how we're supposed to live in the principles that should guide our interactions. Let me go about it this way. Have you ever been accused of something that you didn't do by people that are actually doing the thing that they're accusing you of doing? That's really odd, isn't it? Psychology has a term for it. It's called gaslighting. They try to get you to question your own version of reality because liars are going to lie and sometimes blatantly lie, but say it so passionately and so confidently that it could actually, in your weaker moments, get you to kind of believe maybe your own version of reality is not reality. If Paul had sat back and let this happen, his associates had let this happen, I think that's what was going on here because they are coming after him. And I'll get to how they're coming after him in just a moment. But first, in the second point, I just want to let you know in the second point what the principles of these apostles are for faithful ministry in building up the household of faith and building up the members. It says in this text that they seek not what is yours but you, verse 14. They seek not what is yours but you. They seek, they want you. They want relationship. They want maturity. They want growth to be discipled and a disciple. It says in verse 14, that they are operating with the lessons of parenthood, the sanctifying lessons of parenthood, and applying them to elder eldering. It's like parents to children. In a way, what elders are supposed to do is provide patient parenting, to provide guidance, to spend and be spent, to, to put forth their energy for the flock, expending themselves. I love that passage, to spend and be spent in verse 14. What a beautiful phrase, isn't it? To spend and be spent for what? For your souls. It's about the labor over your souls. Patiently. It says, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? It's as if he's saying, I need to love you more than you love me. But couldn't you love me back? Like, I need to commend you more than you commend me, but couldn't you commend me back? Like, there's these passages in here where I need to be patient with you. You need to be patient with me. Couldn't you be patient back? So it's, it's the elders are supposed to be more than with these principles 
than the, than the sheep that they shepherd, to use the metaphor, than the members that they serve as fellow members. These principles teach us that elders don't unload burdens on the members, but seek to bless and build up the members, not to take advantage of them. This is why abuse must be dealt with so strongly and publicly. Never should an abusive elder be dealt with privately. It's a violation of 1 Timothy 5. We don't fleece the flock for what we can get from the flock. We serve the flock in hopes of seeing the flock brought to the knowledge of Christ. Not perfectly, not omnicompetently. As a matter of fact, this word crafty, it kind of means a sense of of being a know-it-all, of being omnicompetent. Elders aren't omnicompetent. I don't know that very much about them. Certainly not better than you do. I'm not claiming to have every piece of knowledge and all the disciplines perfectly tied together to understand everything about everything. We're not gurus. That's a misunderstanding of what elders are supposed to be. We're supposed to know Christ crucified and to preach this book to you that you might be built up God's way. That's it. That's what you're to hold us to. And that's what you're supposed to support us in. There are principles for this, principles of parenting. Unless the Lord builds the house, its laborers labor in vain. Parenting metaphor from Psalm 127. It's principles of time and sacrifice and love and affection and truth-telling, which we'll get to in just a moment. Not to be a burden, not to try to, to get your stuff, but for your souls. For your souls, acting in a way that is deserving of your love and of your commendation. Not deceitful, not not crafty, but compassionate. It's interesting, really. It really is that, that these rival leaders are accusing Paul, by reading these, these texts afresh, you see it. They're accusing him of satanic traits. They're accusing him of acting satanically. He's, what does Paul say? He's dece- who's the deceiver? They're accusing him of acting deceitful. Who's crafty? That crafty serpent, Satan in the garden. These are descriptions of the enemy. This is about life and death. It's it's not about preferences and heart color. The Apostle Paul, when he is defending God's church, being ran and, and being developed and built God's way, he's talking about something that is of far more importance than the credence we've given it in days gone by. And it is my hope and prayer that we would ponder these things and that we would do our level best to be in line with the letters of Scripture in how we operate as God's people. And number three, so that you can know that what they look like when they're true leaders, so that you can know that what true leaders look like when they're maligned and face opposition by false leaders. So we've seen now the letters of Scripture are from the apostles. We've seen that there are principles laid out for even now how we're supposed to operate together and what elders are supposed to do. And thirdly, what we see is that when true leaders are acting truly, that they face opposition, that they're maligned. I mean... If you can malign the Apostle Paul and his associates like Titus and the brother preacher that was so famous in Corinth that was carrying these messages and trying to get the early church off the ground, if if you can malign them, why would we think that the the, the true teachers, the, the more faithful teachers in the churches today, why would they think that they wouldn't face similar maligning if they're operating based on biblical principles? We have this false idea that God's people are going to be in the majority all the time. We haven't read Gideon. We, we haven't thought about the way that God moves through his people as a small right remnant. We haven't thought through uh, missions like Jeremiah 
where he preached a message that largely was rejected, and he faced opposition. Now, truly, in a way that Jeremiah didn't get to build up, for he was preaching a message that people wouldn't receive, we do get to build up in the New Covenant ministry. We do. It's a different thing that we're doing in the sense that we get to see the completion of the gospel work in people's lives or coming to completion in a way that Jeremiah could only look way down the road and see as the prophet of the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, the so-called prophet of doom. But in a similar way, we face malignment and opposition as the people of God just simply for laboring to act like the people of God. And we should expect it. We should expect such tactics. By reading from chapter 10, verse 7 forward and piecing together, like chapter 10, verse 7 through the end of the book, like what I did from the start of this sermon, you can see what rival leaders were doing to the apostles' team of leaders, what they're saying. They're saying things like this, and this is chapter 10, verse 7, and chapter 11, verse 5, and so on. They were saying things like, these might not be of Christ, chapter 10, verse 7. They won't follow through on what they say, chapter 10, verse 10. He's not a good enough speaker for you to listen to, chapter 10, verse 10. Who's ever heard that of an aspiring expositor? He's overextended his rightful influence and needs to get out of the Corinthian affairs, chapter 10, verse 14. He's inferior to us, chapter 12, verse 11, and chapter 11, verse 5. He doesn't really love you, chapter 11, verse 11. He's lying to you, chapter 11, verse 31. Get this, they actually accuse him of what they're doing. They're lying. They're actually accusing that, of them, him of the things that they're doing. This is not a pristine ivory tower sitting professor, but, uh, but an apostle and his associates that are willing to get entangled to shepherd souls, to get into the muck and the mire on your behalf. Paul preaches a gospel to those that he's already preached it to in Corinth because he knows that we need to hear it again and again and again and again because we're prone to wander and we're prone to be led to wander by leaders with a rival vision of how to build the church based on the clear teaching of the apostles' letters. We're just prone to wander. Oh, Paul, you treat the rest of the church as better than you do the church at Corinth, chapter 12, verse 13. Favoritism is the charge, right? He's trying to get the better of you by taking personal support from the Macedonians, but only taking benevolent support for Jerusalem from you, chapter 12, verse 16. Paul's not satanic. He's not deceitful and lying crafty and burdening, but he's sure having to do a lot of labor to get the members to understand what ought to be obvious. And I don't think we should lose heart with the fact that we have to remind ourselves of the gospel too. It's hard to stay with the gospel because in our fallen human condition, our ears are susceptible to wanting to hear what we want to hear. But God's way is better than our way. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God is kind to us to help us to see through the building of the church through the discipline of the word to help us to see where rival visions for the church are not for the church at all. They're self-serving, they're worldly wise, they're not sacrificial, and they're not of Christ. The truth is that even though we're susceptible to these visions, rival visions of how to build the house, we are also indwelled with the spirit and he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world And the Lord is gracious to give us together a choice and a passion to make the choice to do God's church God's way. Joshua chapter 24, verses 15 through 18, remind us of this. It says, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom 
you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. In a Joshua 24 sense, you have to choose which leaders you'll follow. Those who will tell you what you think you want to hear are those that will tell you the gospel truth. You make choices, then your choices make you. You've not fallen so far that you cannot repent, but you must entrust yourself to true leaders of the apostles' vision for the building up of the church. You must connect this dot today. You must choose today whom you will serve. Number four, you need to give support to true leaders who will abide with you through the hard work of constructing this household of faith because it is hard work. Building up the church is hard. It's long-term work. It's things that we get wrong sometimes before we get right, but we have to fail forward because we're trying to be people of the book. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Perhaps one of the most important things you will do as a leader of your family, is decide who are faithful elders. Who are they? What does a faithful church membership look like? What does it mean for me to engage it? Not to control it, but to serve it. Not to consume it, but to contribute to it. Not to fleece it, but to love it. What does it look like? And you will do well to choose shepherds, that you can support and to support the shepherds that you choose. For this work is, it's almost impossible anyway. But God is God of the impossible. Without the support of one another, we'll not make it across the finish line, but God has put in us the desire to get across the finish line together. So we need to support one another. Consider verses 19 through 21 afresh of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? Is it in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ? It is in the sight of God we've been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility and slander and gossip and conceit and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and that I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented, have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is where support is destined not to happen if the God of the impossible doesn't intervene in our hearts and dwells with his spirit and give us a vision for this building project. Because I'm telling you right now, I run from correction. But yet, some of the most important lessons I've ever learned in my life have been hard lessons. I'm sure you would agree. If you think about a life, the people that have really loved you the best have told you hard messages. They've told you things that maybe even in the moment, in the flesh, perhaps they embarrass you because of your lack of competency. But you realize then what you need to work on to be able to read, write, spell, shovel, work, more faithfully, don't you? The way we say it around these parts is 
There's no such thing as affection without correction. There's no such thing as affection without correction. And so far as we are rightly teaching, the apostles is teaching, then we would mirror our Heavenly Father in what the Heavenly Father says to us by His Word in Hebrews chapter 12, that the Lord disciplines those He loves. It's a hateful thing not to discipline a child, isn't it? It's a hateful thing. Uh, Paul was so patient in his willingness to lead the church to discipline. He was so patient that they even accused him as barks worse than his bite, his letters stronger than his talk. He's never actually going to discipline you. He's just going to talk, but he's not actually going to do anything. They were so convinced of that that some of them, most of them had repented a long time ago because they have the Spirit too. But a few, a small minority were, were really thick-headed and they would not repent. We have the evidence of it right here in chapter 13, verse 21. They had sinned earlier and they continued to sin because they had not repented of their impurity. They continued to view things that they shouldn't view on their phones and on TV. They continued to be personally affectionate with someone that they're not married to in a one-flesh union or a man and a woman as a husband and a wife. They, they continued to practice sensuality and self-pleasure to the neglect of if they burn with lust, serving a one-flesh union and learning the sanctifying work of parenting as God would so provide and learning to contribute to the noble task of eldering in the church should God so provide. They push back against that and they wouldn't repent of the very obvious known characteristic sins that the apostles pointed out to them and that the associates like Titus and the brother preacher pointed out to them and the faithful leaders among the church pointed out to them. Friends, like parenting children, our labor will not bear immediate fruit. It's going to take a lifetime. But unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. But when the Lord builds a house, he doesn't take shortcuts. He throws out warped boards. He makes sure the foundation is firm. The Lord's house built the Lord's way will not just stand the test of this time. It will stand the test of all time. That's what the Lord does for his people. He builds us up into a household of faith. And if we do not develop an appetite and appreciation for parental discipline early on, then we will be for the poor. It's hard to imagine a greater ploy that the false leaders will have against that of true leaders than to be pointing out how harsh they are when they point out sins and call you to repent. Won't you be tolerant of calls towards you to repent of ongoing sins in your life. It's one of the hardest things you'll ever do. First, you'll have to choose those leaders that you will actually work with, that you believe to be faithful and support them when it feels bad. But then what happens when one of them that's been in relationship for you for year one, two, three, four, five, 10, 15, 20, 25 says, you know, brother so-and-so, this sin is still characteristic in your life and we have got to work on it. You've got to repent of this sin whether it's a sin of conceit, a sin of gossip, a sin of slander, the way your speech patterns are, jealousy, anger, some kind of a, a, an accepted sin like that, but maybe an unaccepted sin where you just live a sexually rebellious life and somebody loves you enough to call you on the carpet for it and say, that, that's not in keeping with your profession of faith. That's building the Lord's house. It's building it up. And it is not building the Lord's house to hate God's children so much as to let them flounder in their sin and not actually 
live the life that God has called them to live in him. I hope that today that you've come to understand these four points from this message a little bit more clearly, that, that the Lord's apostles wrote, and we have that in the Bible, that they established some principles for what effective church leadership is supposed to look like and how you're supposed to grow in those principles, you know, namely to be spent and not to take, to, to give, to not be a burden, these types of things, to be a parental. And thirdly, after the Lord's letters and these principles, we found in this sermon that there will always be opposition, maligning the character of those that are teaching you how to have moral character and live for Jesus. There's always going to be that opposition. And fourthly, and finally, what we're talking about here at the end of this sermon is how much you need to choose to support faithful leaders and how you should not put up with, let alone support, leaders that will not stay with the apostles' teaching. Now, surely it will take much wisdom and counsel to live this out. But those are the principles, those are the points that I see in this text for us today. And I think they're important points. I hope that you'll assess your view of how church should be done today. And if you'll seek to align your life with a view of God's design for his church, I think you'll discover a freedom that you just hadn't had before. There's freedom in God's plans when they're done God's way. Don't you agree? God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And I hope as you're making these assessments, I hope that you'll seek counsel and talk with the brothers and sisters, talk with your family over lunch, and see God's word and God's letters for what is it supposed to look like to be a faithful church member and to have faithful elders and shepherds in the church? What does that look like? Remember, when I began the sermon today, I told you that we have friends that chose to build their own house. The Masons. The way I understand it, the architectural design all came from the husband and the father, Nick. Again and again, the laborers would have to talk so they could hear the design plan for the house. They have to ask Nick if they were on the right track, if something needed to be corrected, and what they needed to do next. Friends, we need to turn to our Heavenly Father again and again. He communicates to us by His Word and in prayer. You and I need to hear His design plan for His building for his church. It's his architectural vision way before it's ours. And there cannot be two competing visions for building one church. God's vision all the way. Let's build God's way. The Father has a vision for his house. And as we return again and again to the, the Lord for that architectural design plan, I'm reminded of how he's already fought and won the battle ultimately for us and how he gives us energy for the fight. Considering conclusion this morning, the Gospel of John chapter 2, verses 19 through 25, Jesus himself was facing malignment. He was facing opposition. He employed these principles this way, and he supernaturally saves us through his own work. He said this to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken us 46 years to build, build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? And he was speaking about the temple of his body. And really, that's what we're talking about, the temple of the body of Christ. Jesus was talking about the temple of his own body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture. They believed the scripture. And the word that Jesus had spoken. And now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. 
and they saw the signs that he was doing, that Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because, they knew all, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew himself what was in a man. Jesus had his perfect plan. He once told those inciting influencers of his day that he would build the temple of his house in three days, and they scoffed, and they refused to understand, and they couldn't listen, but you can. You're God's sheep, and you know the sound of God's voice, and in a sense, Jesus' building project of his church is our work still today. In another sense, Jesus' building project was utterly completed on the cross of Christ. For he lived the sinless life you couldn't live and died the death you should have died and rebuilt that house in three days with his own resurrection. It pleased the Father not only to punish the Son on your, the, the on your behalf, but also to raise him to life. That's your hope today. All you have wrapped up in Christ. He died to construct faith in your heart. And he that began a good work in you will be faithful to finish it. He'll get all the trim hung and the decorating done in time for glory. He is the first of the resurrection from the dead but he's far from the last. He's got the means to build you up, to resurrect you. Let us pray. God, thank you for your promises, how precious they are. And we can say precious in your sight are the death of your saints because it is not death to die. Guide us in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.